We've been in chapter 5 of Ephesians for a little while now, 68 sermons, in fact. At least I think that's about the number. And uh, we're nearing the end of this section before Paul's going to begin to wrap up this chapter with some very practical and helpful teaching on marriage. From there, we'll see other family relationships in chapter 6, and then we'll close out our time in the book of Ephesians with the armor of God. It's going to be a little ways out there, but that's the direction we're headed. But this morning, we're going to come back to verse 18 of chapter 5. Let me read our passage this morning, but I'm going to start from 15 just so that we have it in the context. Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, last week, we spoke about what it means to understand the will of the Lord in verse 17. We discussed the three primary ways that Scripture speaks of God's will, His decretive or His secret will, His perceptive will or will of command, and His permissive will or His general will of disposition. His secret will we talked about is that which most believers are trying to find out. But God isn't pleased to share His secret will with us. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, God has revealed to us all that He wants to. Scripture makes it clear that today, as a normal way of life, God does not use dreams and visions and prophets, but instead He speaks through us through Christ and the teachings of Christ which are recorded in the Bible. So, to try to conjure up some secret will of God by reading signs or interpreting our dreams or our own thoughts even is a pagan practice and not Christian. Now, what I didn't say last week, but that I want to say this morning as we move into the next verse, is that we've likely all had experiences. In fact, we all have experiences, but we've likely had experiences that we can't explain. For example, maybe we've had a dream and then it seemed to come true, or we had a thought come across our mind and that appeared foreign and unusual. We have these experiences, and so I never want to discount the fact that people have experiences that maybe they can't explain. Some groups of Christians teach that for instance, if you're praying and something like that comes to mind, that it must be God. Now, listen very carefully, dear church. We can't interpret our experiences, reading them like pagan signs, as being God's secret will for our life. We can't explain our experiences as being God's will for our life. That's paganism. It's not Christianity. There are some experiences we may just need to leave in the realm of we don't understand that. What we do know is that God has told us in His Word how He speaks to us, and it's through His Word. And so that is where we want to keep our focus. Again, I'm not saying that we deny those experiences. 
And I don't deny that people have strange experiences. I also don't deny that they're just strange people. But those experiences don't make it God. Again, the Bible tells us how God speaks, and that's through His Word, not through our experiences. I mean, if you just consider, there are a million things that could affect our experiences, and none of them God. Indigestion. I mean, it sounds funny, but it's true. Stress over a decision, acid reflux, an old memory. All of those things can affect our experiences. I mean, there's endless explainable things that can affect our dreams, for instance. Pizza might do it for you. And other experiences. And so we can't rely on experiences, and we can never interpret our experiences and say with surety that that was God speaking to us. That's not how He communicates to us today. Let me give you a quick illustration, and you'll see as we get into the next passage how some of these things are relevant. They're relevant because how we come to understand God's will determines whether we're walking a wise life or not. And we'll get into wisdom as we come into our passage, but just sort of to recap last week, a quick illustration about experiences. I, I want to share with you this morning, just to really drive home that point. I remember a time when I was still in the charismatic church. I don't talk about this too much. I'm not proud of it, um, but I want to share this experience with you, and you'll see why it's important. I was at a conference, and at some point, the speaker at the conference says that he feels the rain of heaven falling on his head. Now, this is true. I'm sitting way in the back um, in the conference. So he says that he feels the rain of God fall on his head. He says he feels it in a physical drop. Now, this is in the charismatic church. So about the time he says this, people start to go crazy. But he goes on to talk about how he feels an actual drop of water, and then he talks about how it must be the Holy Spirit and the rain of God falling or something like that. And then all of a sudden, people start falling on the ground, and they're rolling around. People burst out in uncontrollable laughter. I mean, people are acting foolish all over the place. Supposedly, these people feeling also this heavenly rain. Now, they all walked away that night having some kind of experience. Now, I'm not saying that it was God that they experienced, because I know for a fact it was not. Their emotions were high, probably their blood pressure was too, and the man speaking was manipulating what was going on, but even he was having an experience. And I can't deny the experience he had. I can just deny the facts that were presented. I can deny the interpretation of his experience. He felt a drop of water on his head since it was a very large auditorium. The sprinkler system wasn't going off. What else must it be other than heavenly rain, according to him? Here's the problem. And there were probably a few hundred, couple hundred people in the auditorium. The problem is it was all a sham. It was all a sham. How do I know that? Well, because I was there and I saw the entire thing that led up to his interpretation, or at least his saying, that it was heavenly rain. 
So this is what really happened. While the speaker spoke, there was a man above the stage. Now, it's a large auditorium. You could actually walk uh, on top of the stage. It was a full platform, and there were offices back there and things like that. So you could, you could walk and be right over the speaker uh, on top of this balcony. And as the man was speaking, the guy who was on top of the balcony, you know, a few stories above him, I sat in the back watching as he dipped his finger in a little cup, styrofoam cup of water, whatever it is, presumably water, just dipped it like that and dripped it on his head. I, I saw that. And I saw when it hit his head, he starts talking about how the rain is falling from heaven. And I saw how as he starts talking about the rain falling from heaven, people in the audience start saying they too are feeling this rain and responding by choice, by the way, to do these things like rolling around and bursting out in laughter and whatever else they were doing. People, I mean, people were worked up in an emotional frenzy. Adrenaline was pumping. No doubt many had various thoughts of things going on in their life, and I have no doubt that many of them assumed as they were getting these thoughts that it must be God because of this so-called heavenly rain. Well, I told you, you know, what happened there, and they assumed that it would be God. And I, when I say people were doing crazy things, I mean people were rolling around on the floor, yelling, screaming, crying, you know, all of these sorts of things. But it was all a facade. I mean, some of them were clearly manipulated. Others manipulated themselves, worked themselves up in a frenzy. And this is just an extreme example of why we should never interpret our experiences to be the secret will of God. There was nothing of God in all of that craziness. In fact, it was chaos. And we do not serve a God of chaos. I don't know who, how many other people saw the start of this. I don't think it was very many of us. But I did. And it's a constant reminder that I can't trust my own experiences because I always don't have the inf- all the information. I don't know why I had the dream that I had last night or the dream that I had two weeks ago, but I'm not going to interpret that as being God. So we need to be cautious. If we want to know what God says, we open our Bible and we read it and we study it. Now, we ended last week with three steps that we can take to ensure we are in the will of God, that we do understand the will of God, rather than interpreting signs and situations and circumstances like pagans do, we pursue a holy life. We read the Bible, we study the Bible, we obey the Bible, we seek wise and godly counsel from people who are doing the same. We pray for wisdom, God promises to give it, And then we make a choice having faith and trusting that God leads the paths of the righteous. And so that's how we come to know and understand we are in the will of God. Now that brings us to our verse for this morning. After Paul says, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with with the Spirit. Do not be foolish. 
but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, at first, this kind of seems like a, a strange comparison. I mean, especially if you consider this verse out of its context. And you do have large groups of Christians who would claim to do these silly things like rolling around on the floor and say, well, we're not drunk with wine, we're drunk with the Holy Spirit. But the text doesn't say be drunk with the Holy Spirit. It's a contrast. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is something entirely different than being drunk with wine. But it makes perfectly, it makes perfectly good sense in the context it's in. Paul's just told us not to be unwise, but to be wise. And now he's going to give specific contrast of two things in practical life. He's going to talk about those who surrender control to alcohol with drunkenness and how those are unwise. That's the point he's making. But those whom the Holy Spirit controls, on the other hand, are wise. Now remember, Paul's really been giving us these comparisons for quite some time. So this is not an out-of-place comment. He's been doing this for the whole chapter, right? Paul tells us what an unbeliever is like, how an unbeliever lives, and then what does he do? He tells us how the Christian should live. He says, live in a manner worthy of being called a Christian. In fact, in verse 1, where he sort of starts this whole thing, he says, be imitators of God. And then in verse 3, he says that sexual immorality and impurity and greed must not even be named among you. In verse 7, he tells us not to be partakers with those who are sons of disobedience. And then he goes on to tell us that we're supposed to walk as children in the light. And so we have these comparisons all the way through the chapter. And so we get to our verse this morning, and we have one more comparison between the lifestyle of those without Christ and those with Christ. Drunkenness characterizes the lives of many without Christ. I mean, we know this. Drunkenness is a huge issue in our country. In 2022, in fact, it was suggested that about 15 million Americans quote, struggle with drunkenness and alcoholism. It's estimated that 95,000 people die every year due to alcohol-related issues. Now let me make this clear. Alcoholism is not a disease, as some would have us believe. Alcoholism is a sin. It's drunkenness, and you make the choice to do it. And then, of course, you make that choice long enough, the body can experience some chemical dependencies. But it's sin. The Bible calls alcoholism drunkenness. And so Paul is dealing with this. But it's not just a problem in our day. This was a problem in Paul's day. It was no different. In fact, it might have been worse. Not only was drinking very common, but virtually everyone drank alcohol in Paul's day. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time this morning discussing how the alcohol in that day was different than what we have today, though that's true. What they drank was watered down um, to extents beyond anything what we do today, and that was because water, drinking water just generally wasn't safe. But Paul's not talking about drinking watered down wine or purified water with a little bit of wine. The point of the passage is about drunkenness. And so I want to just deal with that. Just to remember that drinking alcoholic 
Well, drinking wine that was alcoholic was very common. Uh, if you read a lot of the Greek literature, you'll find that it was very often that it would be a 20 parts water to one part wine. So it was still alcoholic, but it was very low alcoholic content. Clearly, there were ways to be drunk because Paul is dealing with that. There was plenty of drunkenness in Paul's day, and they would have been very familiar with the pagan festivals and the fact that many of the pagan rituals and forms of worship essentially required a drunken stupor. So just imagine, we understand kind of the setting that the church in Ephesus was in. We've talked about that before. You've got all kind of pagan festivals. You've got all kind of worldly things going on. Um, you've got temple worship, and those things almost always included, and maybe even more than included, almost demanded drunkenness as a part of their worship and their rituals um, and the things that they did. And Paul recognizes that, one, the Ephesians were well aware of this, and two, many of them came out of this pagan lifestyle. So he's just making another comparison. It was a common practice, and everyone in the Ephesian church would have been well aware of it. So here you have the Apostle Paul basically saying, do not get drunk like the pagans. Don't be drunk like the unbelievers. Do not give your control over to alcohol as they do. Instead, as believers, be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit. And so we're talking really about what controls us, what we give ourselves to. Now, some have taken this verse to mean that there is some additional experience of being filled by the Spirit. I don't believe that's what Paul is communicating here. If you recall, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, it's made very clear that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer as a sign and a seal of our redemption in Christ. And so what we're talking about here, I don't think is some additional experience, but rather what we yield ourselves to. What we allow to control our mind and our actions. Is it alcohol through drunkenness or is it the Holy Spirit? And so the comparison here is between really the character of the drunkard, the unbeliever who is a drunkard, and the character of one filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to take some time this morning to look at each of those a little more closely so that we can get a fuller understanding of what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. Let's take them in order. We'll look at the character of the drunkard and the effects of alcohol first. Before we do, let's just consider this one word here that isn't particularly common in everyday language, dissipation. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. What is dissipation? Well, dissipation is debauchery, it's intemperance, it's living in excess. It's self-indulgent, promiscuous behavior. The word in the text literally means, by implication, unsavedness. Unsavedness or riotous living. And this really shouldn't be surprising if you've ever been around drunk people. And the picture here painted is really one of the prodigal son. In fact, I want to just turn there and show something to you. So if you want to turn with me to Luke 15, Luke 15, and let's just take a look at the prodigal son because this is the picture painted by Paul's use 
of the word here. You can put your eyes down. We'll start on verse. Uh, we'll start on verse eleven. And he said, "A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me.'" So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and none, and no one was giving him anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. We'll stop there. Now, back in verse 13, and, and here's where I want us to really take a look. It says, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. That word loose comes from the same word in our passage this morning for dissipation. And so Paul is calling us to avoid the loose living that characterizes the world, that characterizes those associated with drunkenness. Let's just take it a few, take a few verses of scripture. See what it has to say just in general about drunkenness and the drunkard. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Those who are intoxicated are fools is the implication here. Therefore, the wise stay far away from drunkenness. You know, it's interesting how often in Scripture, drunkenness is associated with all sorts of other sort of sordid and scandalous behavior. Romans 13.13 says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. You see all the things associated with drunkenness there. And then if you hop over to Galatians in chapter 5, you actually catch another comparison of what it means to have a life in the Holy Spirit and what it means to have an ungodly life. And we'll find drunkenness in here, Galatians 18.26. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now he's going to talk about the unbeliever. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, envying, drunkenness, there you go, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he's going to come back to a Spirit-filled life. In verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And he goes on. And so he starts with the Holy Spirit. He gives us a comparison, includes drunkenness with all these other things, and then ends with what a life in the Holy Spirit looks like. In fact, there isn't a time in Scripture when drunkenness has any positive associations. It's almost always paired with sexual deviancy deviancy and immorality. Jesus says in Luke 21, 34, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. 1 Peter 4, 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. It's always associated with those things. When someone is drunk, they are effectively yielding their senses, their mind, and their reason over to alcohol, which produces all sorts of foul things. The alternative is for the believer to yield themselves to the things of God, to the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 through 8. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we, being believers, are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So drunkenness here is uh, contrasted with soberness of mind and with the light. We understand that. The foolish man yields his senses and minds to alcohol, which is the way of the world. And it's also just interesting, if you were to do a study and sort of look at why people get drunk, I mean, you'll find all sorts of sinful motivations, Essentially, what you're going to find is the worship of self. You're going to find the idol of self and of pleasure. Some people drink because they're trying to get rid of the cares of this world. It's all about them. But the believer is told in 1 Peter 5 that we're supposed to cast all of our anxieties and cares on Christ. People get drunk because they're looking for joy. Yet, we read of the believer in 1 Peter 1 that we're supposed to greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, being full of the glory in Christ. People get drunk looking forward to their sins. People get drunk to make sinning easier, but the Christian flees sin. And then there are many people who in the world get drunk because they just have no hope. They have no hope. But the Christian has the only true hope, salvation in Christ. Total opposites. In fact, the only thing in common between being drunk and being Holy Spirit filled is that they both fill the temple of your body with something. But one is darkness and the other is light. One is righteousness, the other perversion. One is of God, the other is of the world. One says you're not good enough on your own and grants you the power of God, that's the Holy Spirit. The other says God isn't good enough. So you need a substance, and it promises what it can never give. 
Now we're talking about this. I want to give you a word of caution here. As we look at what Scripture has to say about drunkenness, we do want to be biblical. And this is an area where it's very easy to cross over into legalism. To add to or to take away from Scripture. Paul is speaking of drunkenness, and I want to be clear about that. He's not speaking of consuming alcohol, period. They all consumed alcohol. He's speaking about drunkenness. Now I would say if alcohol tempts you to drunkenness, then you should never touch it. Stay a mile away from it. I think we ought to be very cautious and mindful of other believers when alcohol is involved. And it's probably better for most that they just stay away from it. But the prohibition here is drunkenness. If it wasn't, the mouthwash half people use would be sinful because it also has alcohol in it. So we just want to be careful that we don't go beyond Scripture in either direction. This isn't a liberty to get as close to drunkenness as you can. And it's not a prohibition of alcohol, period. When Jesus drank the cup on the night before He was crucified, it was wine in the cup, and there's no reason to believe it didn't have some alcohol in it, though it would have been very little. Just as a side. But the warning here is clear. Drunkenness is of the darkness, and it's depraved. It's not for the Christian. It's not for the one who wants to walk in wisdom. The fool is the one who indulges in excess. So, that's the character of the drunkard. That's what we see in Scripture concerning drunkenness. The friends of the drunkard are depravity and debauchery. But the contrast Paul gives is that we are, as Christians, to be influenced not by alcohol, but by the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, what does being filled look like? What does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Now, some foolishly believe being filled by the Spirit is sort of living by the seat of your pants, checking your brains at the door, sort of engaging in a, some kind of loosey-goosey, emotionally driven Christianity, and then blaming that on the Holy Spirit. That's not being Spirit-filled. It's blasphemous in a lot of cases, and at the very least, it's foolishness. That's not what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Now, especially when we consider that the Apostle Paul tells us in chapter 4 that we're to become mature, no longer being tossed here and there by different doctrines. We're supposed to be steady and sober-minded people as the people of God. And so being filled by the Holy Spirit can't mean your life looks like chaos. But the Apostle Paul has been answering really this question the entire time we've been in this epistle. The Spirit-filled life is one that's characterized as the worthy walk. When Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, that's a Spirit-filled life. Verse 1, chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's the Spirit-filled life. And then he goes on, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a life filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if those things aren't characterizing our life, 
we aren't living a life filled by the Spirit. And so instead of yielding ourselves to alcohol, we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And we see the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We read what that was earlier. If you want to know if you're filled, being filled by the Holy Spirit, then we can very simply ask ourselves, do we, ourselves, do we see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. And may we never forget that last one, self-control. Self-control. It's easy to see that these characteristics are quite the opposite of what a drunkard exhibits. Now, Paul's just been telling us in the previous verse to live a life in wisdom, and this is connected, right? This verse is grammatically linked to that verse. It says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he's giving us here another way to walk in wisdom. There's that little conjunction there. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. These aren't separate verses. They're together. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. You remember that old song from, uh, what was it, Schoolhouse Rock Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function? hooking up words and phrases and clauses. This goes together. So we're talking about walking a wise, in a wise way, walking in a life of wisdom. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit understand what the will of the Lord is, and they walk in wisdom. And we remember from the very beginning, we remember rather what the very beginning of wisdom is, right? Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the first step is that we have to have the fear of the Lord. That makes sense, right? Because Paul's talking about the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. The unbeliever doesn't have the fear of the Lord, therefore he doesn't have true wisdom. But that isn't all we have to do. We have to grow in wisdom. The very thing Paul's been trying to teach us by putting off the old man, putting on the New man, we walk not as unwise, but as wise. And if you recall, we spoke about how to walk wisely just a few Sundays ago. You have to be a man or woman of the Word if we're going to walk wisely. If we're going to be filled with the Spirit, we have to be a man or woman of the Word. Spirit-filled people love God's Word, read God's Word, study God's Word, and seek to obey God's Word. If someone tells me they've had an experience where they were filled with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit did this or that, the very first question I want to ask is, when's the last time you spent any time in God's Word? And in some circles, you might not get an answer. Well, then whatever it was, wasn't God. Spirit-filled people love God's Word, read God's Word, and obey God's Word. Spirit-filled people follow after Christ. And not this mamby-pamby, buddy Jesus people have today, but Christ, the one who said, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Spirit-filled people follow that Christ. They pick up their cross, they deny themselves, and they follow in the ways of Jesus. That's what it looks like to be Spirit-filled. It means we're controlled by Christ. 
We're controlled by His Word. We're controlled by His ways and His will. I like how Warren Worsby puts it. He says, To be filled with the Spirit is the same as to be controlled by the Word. The Spirit of truth uses the Word of truth to guide us into the will and the work of God. That's what it means to be Spirit-filled. The last thing that I want to consider tonight as we wrap up is, or this morning rather, which I think is vital to see, is that Paul is beckoning us to choose something here. This being filled by the Spirit is not something that just happens to us. You don't just happen to walk wisely. You don't just happen to walk a holy life. Paul gives a command. He says, do not get drunk with wine. Make the choice not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't make this choice. Make this choice. Getting drunk doesn't just happen to you. It's something you choose by way of giving yourself to alcohol. And the contrast then must be similar. Being filled by the Spirit is not something here in this text that happens to you. We're certainly given the Holy Spirit when we are saved, but to be filled by the Spirit here means that we are to give ourselves to Him. And we do that by following all of that which Paul's been teaching us up to this point. We do that by choosing to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We do that by choosing to walk in humility, by choosing to walk in love, by striving for unity within the church, by choosing to forgive one another. And as we choose to study God's Word and obey God's Word and follow Christ, we are choosing to be filled with the Spirit. There are far too many in the church believe that being filled with the Spirit is necessarily some emotional experience. But that's not how Paul speaks of being filled here. It's a choice centered around pursuing a life that's characterized by the light of Christ. In fact, he's going to go on and we're going to see in the following verses that being this being filled by the Spirit is meant to have a very real effect on our personal relationships. In the next verse, after he says, but be filled with the Spirit, Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. He's continuing to explain what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. This feeling, filling is a choice to worship God rightly, to walk uprightly, and to view others warmly. So, how do we know that we're filled with the Spirit? Well, we know that if we're drinking alcohol, we're going to get drunk. Likewise, I think we can know if we're pursuing a righteous life in obedience to Christ, we can know we're being filled with the Spirit. And so the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, are you pursuing righteous living? 
Are you full of gratitude towards God? Do you love His Word? Do you love His church? You'll never convince me that someone who hates God's church or doesn't have a love for God's church, you'll never convince me that they're spirit-filled or that they love God. You can't love the head of the church and hate its body. You just can't. Do you love the worship, singing hymns and spiritual songs to God? Do you delight in speaking about Christ? Do you desire for the lost to be saved? If the answer is yes to those generally, then you can know and have confidence, I believe, that you're being filled with the Spirit. Simply stated, do you genuinely love the things God loves? These are the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't believe it's very difficult. It's rather simple. It's not always easy. But these are the evidences of being filled with the Spirit. And so Paul says, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray.